the swarm of locusts. gets your attention to hear that swarm of locusts. Those of you that lived in Chicago all your life, what happens every 17 years, right? Yeah, the cicadas that come. I remember my first experience was in, uh, the only time I've ever lived here at the time was 1973. I was in college and can remember the ground being covered uh, and the walls being covered. The next time coming around is uh, 2024. You might want to mark it on your calendar to plan to maybe be out of town. You can't miss them. They're everywhere. They're noisy. They're moderately destructive to new growth, but really they don't do any harm to humans. They're just sort of annoying and, and fascinating, really, the way they stay underground for 17 years. Actually... They're cicadas. They're not locusts. Locusts are different. Locusts, on the other hand, can be terribly uh, destructive. Uh, they were one of the plagues, remember, uh, in Egypt with Moses and all that, the locust plague. They stripped everything. Here's a picture from Ethiopia of a, of a locust swarm. They're severe ones that are in Africa, and they get our attention. They get our attention big, and I love this one that I found from Syria. Isn't that great? <laughs> up close and personal with uh, a locust there. And that gets our attention too. Their mean little faces and their high-pitched sound and the destruction that they do to the crops. The minor prophets whom we're learning from this summer, they also grab our attention. They grab our attention with strong words. They grab our attention with strong messages. They grab, grab our attention with images like a locust swarm, or they grab our attention with images and realities, like the prophet Hosea, this man of God who had a prostitute wife named Gomer. That grabs our attention as the minor prophets draw us in. This week, Joel, whose prophecy starts with an actual locust invasion, total destruction, gets our attention. And for Joel, it enabled him, as he talked about this locust invasion, it enabled him to draw attention to deeper matters, to the more ultimate matters of a holy God whose wrath against sin could bring even more destruction, more massive destruction, more massive harm than any locust swarm could. Joel's calling attention to that. He's calling attention to a holy God of judgment, And he's giving a warning saying, look out, because it's going to get even worse than this on the great and terrible day of the Lord. In fact, Susan asked me this morning, she said, you really want me to stop with verse 11, leave him hanging there? (laughs) I said, yes, because it's going into this, because it gets better, as you know. But it gets our attention, this devastation to come. We've said this the last couple weeks, and as we look at this series this summer, the Minor prophets with a major message that the message of the minor seems to major on doom. And there's a high message of doom in Joel as we jump in. Until we see the doom, until we see it as part of a bigger message that our loving God is calling his people back to holy and purposeful living according to his good purposes or aligned with his good purposes. Again, the minor prophets are these uh, that come. They're, they're only called minor, not because their message is minor, but because they are smaller uh, than the, the main prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And, uh, but the minor prophets have this, this important message. And today, Joel grabs us with the reality of a holy God's judgment. But he leads us also to God's heart. In these few chapters, only three chapters, he leads us also to God's heart, where the message comes through that only in turning to him 
can we be saved? So we want to look this morning a little bit at this holy God that calls us to attention. Secondly, we'll look at him really as he comes through in these pages as a gracious God who calls us to repent and to turn. And then thirdly, the image of restoration that comes from Joel as well. He is a God who calls us to rejoice and to receive uh, in this act of repenting. We heard from part of chapter 2 as Susan read for this morning. Now I just want to go back to chapter 1 and read just some of the words from the opening words of Joel's uh, prophecy. All we know about Joel is it was the son of Pethuel, and that's all we get. But it says this, the Lord gave this message to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you leaders of the people. Everyone listen, in all your history, has anything like this ever happened before? Tell your children about it in the years to come. Pass the awful story down from generation to generation. After the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. And then came the hopping locusts, and then the stripping locusts too. A vast army of locusts has invaded the land. It is the terrible army. It is too numerous to count. Its teeth are as sharp as the teeth of lions. They have destroyed my grapevines and fig trees, stripping their bark and leaving the branches white and bare. The fields are ruined and empty of crops. The grain, the vine, and the olive oil are gone. Despair all you farmers. Wail all you vine growers. Weep because the wheat and barley, yes, all the field crops are ruined. And as we heard, it wasn't a lot better at the beginning of chapter 2. But here he's specifically speaking to this locust invasion and saying, you have not seen anything like this. Now, we're not sure if Joel is painting sort of a poetic picture, an allegorical picture, but it's likely this was a real event that happened. We actually don't know which period Joel was prophesying. He doesn't give us any kind of clue of his timing and history. But most of the prophets spoke during the period of the divided kingdom of Judah in the south and Israel in the north. So it could have been anywhere from 800 to 400 BC. But what he was saying was, get ready for this day of the Lord. It seems to have actually happened, though, because he's very specific about the kinds of locusts. The cutting locusts, the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts. And we might just summarize them and call them all kind of just sort of creepy, creepy locusts. But he gives these four names. Now, we're not sure if he's being specific here because these are different species or varieties. Uh, Some might want to spiritualize it and say they symbolize different spiritual realities. But I think probably what Joel's doing is simply communicating the totality of devastation, That these four different kinds just sort of communicate a successive waves of destruction coming upon the land. And affecting far more than just one year of crops. When he speaks of the vines that are stripped bare too, they don't come back in one year from that kind of devastation. It was a big, big disaster. And so the question is, was it sent by God or is it something that just happened and then is perhaps used by God? Either way, it gets the attention of the people to whom Joel is writing And it makes one stop and consider ultimate life matters, which is what he's doing. And when you think about it, even today, huge disasters that happen in the world make us pause and consider and ask the ultimate life matters, life questions as well. The big disasters that happen around us, they shake us out of our indifference and cause us to look at life more deeply. There are the natural disasters which are devastating and seem so out of our control. I prayed this morning for the the, the volcanoes in the volcano in Guatemala, which is is great devastation, 
my daughter-in-law has, is from Guatemala and family is there. And so her heart is even more connected to the loss of life that's happening there. Over 100 lives lost and over 200 still missing. And it's tragic, that kind of power over which there is no control. Our mind goes back a few years to the great tsunamis, the one in Indonesia that took over over 125,000 lives. Our minds couldn't quite wrap around that. And then over 15,000 whose lives were lost in the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. Earthquakes, hurricanes, mudslides in Santa Barbara this last year, floods, all these things got our attention and remind us how fragile each of our lives is and how much these things are out of our control. And they make us ask questions like, why would God allow this to happen? Or is it perhaps the judgment of God? And then what's worse are the horrors of the human-caused disasters. Now, added to Columbine in our vocabulary are Parkland and Santa Fe and Virginia Tech and Aurora, Colorado and other horrible mass shootings that have happened. They get our attention and there's a frantic call for gun control, a frantic care for, call for better care for the mentally ill and, and, and an increase of fear of every time you send your kids to what seems like the place, we never thought this would happen here. Everybody says that. We never thought it would happen here. And so we ask the same questions about these disasters. Are they sent by God? Some people like to explain, some people fashion themselves a prophet saying, this is God's judgment on fill in the blank, some social issue we're dealing with. It only makes us angry rather than us drawing close to God. Are these things just happening or are they used by God? And either way, when we get back here to Joel, it works for Joel because in this natural disaster, he sees just a forerunner for something much bigger. And you hear the connection in Joel chapter 1, verse 15. He says this, and it's very clear what he's talking about. He said, the day of the Lord is on the way. The day when destruction comes from the Almighty, how terrible that day will be. Seems like the day of the Lord ought to be something good, huh? Like, ah, Jesus is coming back. But prior to that is this great judgment. The day of the Lord. You haven't seen anything yet, he says. In our reading, we heard Joel speak of an army marching down Jerusalem. He's speaking of an army, but it sounds like he's still kind of talking about The locusts, too. They look like tiny horses. They run fast. Listen to the noise they make, like the roar of a fire sweeping. They swarm over the city and run along its walls. They get into our windows. Remember that part? The sun and moon grow dark and the stars no longer shine. Locusts are army. He's mixing the metaphors here, but whatever he's doing, Joel is drawing our attention to the great and terrible day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was familiar to the Israelites. It's all through the Old Testament. The most references to it are in this little prophecy of Joel. And the locusts are just a little introduction. And the day of the Lord will be much worse. This is big. This is the great and terrible day of judgment. Judgment is coming, says Joel. 2.11 again, the last verse that Susan read said, is this where you want me to stop? This is it again. (laughs) The Lord leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who could endure it? (laughs) I read that about God and go, Where's my Abba Father, you know, whose lap I get to crawl into when I'm feeling kind of sad and insecure, you know? Where's gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Where's, um, you know, where's um, the God whose loving kindness is everlasting? 
Even last week in Hosea, with sort of the grim picture of his relationship with Gomer, there's this ongoing, constant reminder of God whose love will not let go. But when we hear of this terrible day of the Lord that no one can endure, we wonder where that loving God is. But he's here. The loving God is here as the holy God. They don't cancel each other out. They're not opposed. God is both holy and loving. He is the holy God. He is holy other. God is set apart in perfection and purity. He designed and created the world and he is its rightful judge and the only one that can be. He created us humans. He created us in his image to reflect his good and holy character. But we have not done that. We have gone our own way, even with him often calling us back. And so we have moved away from him. Therefore, we live an unholy life. And we're unable to live and be in his presence. And because of our moving away, his justice, because he's also a just God, his justice calls for judgment. Who can endure, says Joel? Who can run and hide? Who can be saved? And the rhetorical question that he continues to raise has only one answer, no one. We are all doomed. That gets our attention, doesn't it? (laughs) And that's what God wants. God wants to get our attention to the judgment. Because at the deepest place of his heart, he does not want to do us in. But he gets our attention with this reality of judgment and this reality of unholy living. And that's what Joel wanted for his day too as he called people's attention to this coming judgment. But as we press on into Joel and we get into chapter 12 or chapter 2 verse 12, things turn and we begin to see the gracious God. We see the gracious God with a call to repentance and a call to return. Verse 12 begins this way. It says, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief. Instead, tear your hearts. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is not easily angered. He is filled with kindness and is eager not to punish you. He is eager not to punish you. Sometimes we build this picture of God as this angry, wrath-filled God who has had it up to here with us. And he just wants to wipe us out. We read these images in scripture. We saw it way, all, back, all the way back in the story of Noah. And yet at God's heart, God is a holy God and he is a God of love. And he is eager not to punish. And so there is a way out. There is a way to respond to this warning of pending doom. To repent and turn to God. It's in God's nature that he is a God of rescue. Here's the words we like to read about God, right? Here's the the words we like to read. This is the same God, though. It's consistent with his holiness and his good purposes. He wants us back. He wants us to lead holy lives. He's the same God, and that's why he warns us. And the warning itself is his love. Otherwise, he could have just obliterated us and said, I fed up with you. I don't love you anymore. I will destroy you. If he hated us, if he was our enemy, that would be the conclusion, But it's like a doctor that we go to who's concerned for our health and our lifestyle and says, you've got to make changes. You are killing yourself. Megan bought a cookbook from Costco and she says, I don't like the title, given what we're dealing with our family, but the title is How Not to Die. It's a cookbook on healthy eating. And sometimes those are hard words to hear. 
It's like the teacher who's afraid that a student will fail and has to be harsh in terms of the limits put on and the work that needs to be done in order to learn and succeed. Or the parent who sees danger ahead and has a harsh punishment or a harsh boundary they have to put down that seems like it's simply not fair, to which every parent learns life isn't fair. But the parent sees the danger that's out ahead and is providing not only the warning but the way out. God's nature is to save us. God's nature is to rescue us. He rescues us from our sin. Yes, from sin and its consequences, which are ultimately judgment and destruction. It raises the question about, um, it, it, it's going to get better. Hang on, okay? You know, for G- people that wanted that Jesus ties everything up in a neat little bow, we're, we'll get there, but let's press into Joel a little bit more. Let's not be afraid of this and look into the heart of this God who is holy and loving. Let's ask the question, what is the sin? What's, what's Joel dealing with here? Some of the minor prophets are very specific about the sin that's going on. We saw that last week, Hosea, and the worship of idols and false gods and the unfaithfulness of the people. But Joel is not quite as specific. But if we look a little bit closer, if we peel back a few of the verses, we can see a few hints of what Joel was dealing with. Verse 5 of chapter 1 says this, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. All the grapes are ruined, and all your new wine is gone. Now, the first reaction might think that he's fighting against drunkenness, but that's not the point here. He's speaking about being asleep figuratively. The people of Joel's day had a a lack of awareness of the times that they were living in. They were spiritually asleep. They They were dulled. They were indifferent. They were living in a world that was impacted by the unholy living, and they didn't realize how bad it was. Like someone said, a little too much to drink. They were, their senses were dulled. They didn't realize how far away they were from what God wanted. So that's a clue to some of the sin that he's dealing with here. But the clearest indication here is in, in chapter 2, verse 13, where he simply says, return to the Lord your God. If he's calling them to return, it means they had gone away. <laughs> They'd left. They were gone. They had drifted from God. They had drifted away from the center of their life as the people of Israel. They were no longer depending on him. They were no longer honoring him. They were turning from God, which when we do that, we gently turn to self. The minor prophets are such a distant in the past. They were dealing with a world and circumstances and language and images that are so foreign to us. This constant doom and some of the odd circumstances that they were called to, we can hardly even relate to it. When we start talking about these sins, it gets a lot more up close and personal, doesn't it? Indifference to what's going on. Unaware of how the culture is impacting us and pulling us away from God. Not recognizing where God is moving around us. Not caring about what God wants. Insincere worship, which is worship that goes through all the motions and says all the right things, but is not logged or lodged in the heart. Drifting from God towards self-absorption, self-justification. They happen to me. <laughs> I do that. I'm, I, 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 I grieve over my own sin of of self-absorption sometimes and realize that I need to return to the Lord just as the prophet was calling his people to do. 
And that's why God addresses sin and then calls for this change of heart. A really change of heart. You know, those of you who have young kids, you know, you, one of the things we want to teach our kids when they do something wrong is to say, I'm sorry. And so they learn that as a formula, right? Say, I'm sorry, and then go right to, back to doing what they're doing. And I, I remember this when my kids are little, and now that I've got a couple four-year-olds in my life, I'm reminded how this works, okay? I'm sorry. Free pass. Your kids never do that, do they, Amy? No? Yeah. <laughs> But what we want with our kids, we, we need to work with them. What we want them is, we want them to, to, to own it and to feel it and to understand why they need to say, I'm sorry. That God wants that too. And so what God means here in verse 13 of chapter 2, where he says, don't tear your clothing in grief, instead tear your hearts. Now that was an Old Testament custom of, of when you were, were repenting and in sin, you actually ripped your clothing. Or in older versions of the Bible, you might be more familiar. Do not, don't rend your clothing, but rend your hearts. We don't use the word rend much to mean tear. What he's saying is, um, rending your clothing could just be a symbolic action to do because that's what people do when they're sad. But actually let it tear at your heart. Let it rip at your heart. How you have failed God. And repent in return. Quick note about verse 14, 2.14 says this. It says, who knows? Perhaps even yet he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this terrible curse. Perhaps he will give you so much that you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. It's not a slam dunk. We don't, we don't negotiate with God. It's not like, I said I'm sorry. I, I repented. Where's the forgiveness? We don't come before our God that way. We come with a humble heart and a broken heart. And perhaps... Perhaps he will give us reprieve. He's not capricious with us, but you need to remember God's freedom and choice. We don't control God. We don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. We don't negotiate a deal or come with a simple formula like a simple I'm sorry. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts broken. He wants our hearts ready and open to trust him again. And then finally we come to this promise of restoration because God is a restoring God and we see that in the words of the prophet Joel as well. As we move on into chapter 2, there are some wonderful images of newness and and abundance here of of recreation and of grace. He speaks of an overflowing of, of vegetation and overflowing of fruitfulness in the land. And he also speaks of rain, rain that comes as an expression of grace. The Holy Land is, a, is an arid land. And after living in Arizona for 17 years, I know what it's like, like to long for the refreshing rains. Right now we're longing for them to stop already here, right? <laughs> but in the Holy Land, rain was seen as a blessing and an expression of grace. Joel 2.23, Rejoice, you people of Jerusalem. Rejoice in the Lord your God for the rains he sends are an expression of his grace. And then these wonderful words of restoration in 225, I actually read them two weeks ago in our introductory week for the Minor Prophets, where the Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the stripping locusts, the cutting locusts, the swarming locusts, and the hopping locusts. There they are again. It was I who sent you this great destroying army against you. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago in relation to the stresses and the pain that a lot of us are experiencing, the brokenness in our life and the, the, the things that are going on in our life that don't have a simple 
tie it all up in a bow, Jesus makes everything fine answer. Those things that some of you are experiencing right now or that are going on in the lives of people that you know and caring about. These words have been like a balm to people. B-A-L-M, not B-O-M-B. <laughs> of God's promise to restore when life has been devastated. So these words remind us of God, who God, who even after sometimes the deepest of hurt and pain, can begin to put things back together. But as I was working on this thing, can, can we do that? Can we, I mean, Joel's talking about something big and cosmic here. He's, he's talking about the day of the Lord and the judgment of all people. Is it okay for us to, to find some comfort for our own lives? Is this, a, is this a now or a later thing? Is this a now to find our personal relationship with God, bringing restoration? Or is this a later when God puts it back together? Is this something big and huge that God's doing or something small? Is this when Jesus returns or is this in my life? Well, like a lot of prophecy, I think it's both. <laughs> yes, Joel is painting this bigger, broader picture. But we find something in the nature of God that's here too. This God who is holy, but this God also who promises to restore and put things back together. Prophecy looks way ahead to this future time when everything will be put together. To this end of time when Christ sets up his kingdom. But I think it's okay for us to find some hope in the small and the now. God's restoring grace. But let's get back to it and realize that what Joel is really about, mainly though, is the big, the final, and even the messianic day. And that's where we get in the third chapter of Joel. Remember what we said at the beginning? We said that Joel grabs us with the reality of a holy God's judgment, but leads us also to God's heart. Only in turning to him can we be saved. And so even though the Messiah is not referred to here in Jesus, his name certainly is not mentioned in this Old Testament prophet we can see some direction towards this Messiah. We have judgment and we have Jesus woven through these words. The judgment in chapter 3, if you read it, shifts from Judah to the nations who have attacked. And we're reminded that the New Testament also tells us of a final judgment to come. The Old Testament speaks of it. Jesus speaks of it. John speaks of it in his revelation. A judgment to come that those who have rejected Christ and those who persist as the enemies of God will face a final judgment. The great and final and terrible day of the Lord will be doom for those who reject Christ, but victory for Christ and his kingdom. We're reminded for Christ who does not really want anyone to perish. Remember that. In fact, Peter even says that he is being patient and not bringing the end yet. For God is not willing that any should perish and drawing them back. And when Peter speaks in the New Testament, of course, he is speaking of Jesus, whom Joel was only anticipating. And in Jesus, a picture begins to come together because in Jesus, we have the judgment in Jesus, but we have in Jesus the cross and the crown. The cross the sacrificial death, and the crown, the victory. It was not an easy out for the people of God. It was not an easy out for Jesus. It was on the cross that Jesus bore the weight of sin. In a sense, we could say that the cross of Jesus absorbed the full brunt 
of the day of the Lord. This huge judgment was was to come on all people. But Jesus on the cross took it on him. Jesus endured that wrath. Jesus endured the judgment. Jesus averted judgment, judgment for those who trust in him. And so the answer for who can be saved is not no one anymore. But it's a simpler answer, isn't it? Who can be saved? Those who truly repent. Those who allow their hearts to be broken by their own sin. Those who then turn. That's what repent means. It means to turn from self to God and repent. Turn and repent. And to receive Christ are saved and declared righteous and free from judgment. And it's all by grace. It's all by the grace of God. We are saved by grace. It starts to make more sense now when we see the judgment in this context of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that we see God as this God of judgment, this holy God of judgment in Joel, we also see God described in Joel as both merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. Mercy and grace. I love this definition of mercy and grace that I found a few years back. Mercy is defined this way. If someone broke into your house to rob you and you caught him, but you didn't punish him. I didn't have to use the male pronoun now. If someone broke into your house and you caught her and you didn't punish her, I am, I like keep things equal here. Anyway, seriously. But grace Grace is if you not only caught this intruder, but you gave them a warm meal and offered them a place to stay. They don't deserve that. Precisely. <laughs> People, we are the robbers. And God is the householder. We are the robbers. We are Gomer. The unfaithful wife, the prostitute who sold herself and ignored her husband. We're the unfaithful ones. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. We deserve the day of the Lord. We deserve a locust invasion. But we've received grace. We've received grace and we have grace and hope to give. I love these words that actually come from the prophet Jeremiah in his Lamentations. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. We are not consumed by judgment. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Strong words of doom from Joel, but powerful words of grace and restoration. We take hope in that and take hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I ask your forgiveness for times I just want to make the story all work out just fine. Thank you that in your grand plan it does. But as I confess that, Lord, I ask that you would help me to let my heart again be broken for the things that break your heart about my own sin and the brokenness in our world. 
again, we not simply say Jesus is the answer, but we would powerfully and boldly and confidently, Jesus, say, you are the answer. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Grateful for your grace. Amen.